Hey everybody, it's Brock Falk, and I want to thank you for listening to this message from Heritage Church of Christ. We would be thrilled to share more content like this with you and make it easy for you to share it with others. You can find more messages like this on our podcast, or you can download our smartphone app by searching for Heritage Church of Christ in your app store. But most importantly, I hope this message encourages you to take a next step toward a thriving relationship with Jesus. Enjoy. We look forward to opportunity to be together and to reconnect with one another. And if you're new to Heritage, I want you to know one really important thing this morning, and that is that we believe there is room for you in this family. That's the nature of our family because our goal is to support one another in the spiritual journey of following Jesus' teaching. That's what we're all about here at Heritage and we're supporting one another and that's actually what today's text and what today's lesson is all about too. But let's pay attention to what time of the year it is. Here, mid-August has now come and gone, which means that over the past few days, our community has carried out the annual ritual of sending the children back to school. The supplies have been purchased, the teachers have been met, the lunches have been packed, the marching band has been practicing, and the lights are flashing in the school zones again. Did you notice that on your commute this week? It's a bittersweet moment of transition for families when this time of the year comes along and school-aged children are heading back into the classroom. And it's, I know, bittersweet at times for the teachers and faculty who are heading back into the classroom as well. But there's so much excitement that's wrapped up, so much newness that's involved in all of these beginnings and these opportunities that are happening. There's the new school clothes and the new school supplies, the new backpack and the new folders. And so, so for most of the kids and for most of the parents, there's a hopeful anticipation about what the year is going to bring. But all of that newness brings with it some nerves at the same time. And most of the parents that I talked to this week spent the whole first day of school wondering, how are the babies doing? How are the babies in their classrooms and at the lunch table and on the bus and at the bus stop, how are the babies doing? And we wondered about those babies and our hearts were distracted all day. Our minds were in two separate places as we were going about our daily routine and wondering how the babies were doing. And it didn't really matter whether those babies were in kindergarten or whether they drove themselves up to the high school that morning. Sarah and I felt the same way In the last few days when our kids went back to school, our daughter was beginning the fifth grade and she had a hard time drifting off to sleep that first night because of all of the excitement and all of the energy and wondering about what her teachers and her classmates and her schedule was going to be like. Our son was heading into high school for his very first year, his ninth grade year, and he's heading into a new campus and he's going to have to learn new procedures and find his way around a new place. But his first day was a little bit easier for mom and dad this year because it appears that at the high school, they don't mind that the children own cell phones. And so in between classes or sometimes during classes and during lunch, we were able to get updates. He would send us text messages about how things were going and send us pictures of the things we forgot on the supply list. And he would let us know about how things were going for him and we could text him back. And it felt like, it felt like we were just staying connected all day. We were getting updates throughout the day and it helped our hearts wonder and feel calm about how our son was doing And you know, that kind of connection, 
over the miles, that kind, of con- that kind of connection across the distance, it can have a profound effect on the relational strength between people. It has a profound sense of helping us to feel like family. And that's sort of what's going on in the letter that Debbie read from for us just a few minutes ago. The passage she read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's a passage from a letter that's been preserved for us in the New Testament portion of our Bibles, a letter that was written to a church family in the Greek city of Corinth 1,900 years ago, written by an early Christian missionary named Paul. You've seen his name on hospitals and road maps and things like that before. But in order to have the context mean anything to you about a Greek city called Corinth and a missionary named Paul, you need to know a few things about what was going on in the relationship between them. It helps to know that Corinth was a diverse city with a transient population. You see, Corinth sits on a very narrow piece of land less than four miles wide, and that little piece of land separates the Aegean Sea and the Ionian Sea, which are two important trade routes in that part of the world in Greece. And so Corinth was in this very strategic position for international trade. There was a lot of value. Instead of trying to sail around the big peninsula at the southern tip of Greece, there was value in just coming into the port on the east side of Corinth, transporting your stuff across that little stretch of land and then putting it on another ship on the west side of Corinth. And so Corinth has ports on both sides of town, which means that there's a constant flow of sailors who have been at sea for weeks and weeks and merchants who are coming in and bringing their money and their goods and their cultural influence with them. And commerce made a lot of people in Corinth rich. But there was also a substantial workforce of the laborers that it takes to load and unload the ships that are coming in from all over the known world. And so it's important to know that context about the city that's receiving this letter. And it's important to know something about Paul's history with the people in that city. You see, Paul had lived and preached in Corinth for over a year and a half at one time. He founded the church that received this letter now, Paul founded lots of churches. That was the work of his, the second part of his life. That was what he was commissioned to do. He was a church planter, but the Corinthian church was unique. The Corinthian church was the church that demanded extra attention. They needed some extra work. They demanded a lot more than all of Paul's other projects. They needed more help. They needed more guidance from Paul, even after he moved on to other locales. And so Paul exchanged letters with the Corinthian church. Time and time again, he would write and they would write back and he would write and they would write back. We have no idea how many of these letters exist. We know there were at least five. Only two of them have survived antiquity for us to be able to study. But we can put together all of the clues and figure out that this was at least the third letter in their back and forth correspondence. And through these letters, Paul is trying to stay connected. Across the distance, across the miles, he's trying to continue to stay connected to this people, this group of folks who have come to believe in Christ because of his preaching. He's trying to stay connected with this people, this group of people who are young in the faith. He's trying to continue to exert some spiritual influence and some mentoring into their lives. But more importantly, he's trying to help them stay connected to one another. More than the distance between them, he's trying to close the distance in their church. 
because the Corinthians lived in a culture that was a lot like ours. The Corinthians lived in a culture where there were a lot of different forces trying to pull people apart from one another. Do you feel that? Besides the cultural and the language differences in a trade route city like Corinth, there were also socioeconomic differences. There were racial differences. There were religious background differences in this town. And the church in Corinth had people from every one of the different backgrounds and nationalities and ethnicities. The church in Corinth drew from a wide range, a big net of people in their town. The city and the church in Corinth had people who were raised in Judaism. They had people who were raised in paganism before they came to know Jesus. And inside the church, inside this little church, and we're talking about a church full of people that probably met in one of the large rooms in one of their homes. Inside this church, people were treating faith like it's an individual journey, like it's an individualized experience, like it's something that you go through on your own. People in this church were treating their faith like it's something that I do rather than something that we do. Like it's not an experience that happens in community. And so when Paul heard about some of the challenges that they were having, some of the struggles that they were enduring, some of the ways that their faith was being lived out and causing problems for one another and ostracizing some and making some feel left out, when Paul heard about all of this, he penned this letter. He sent it with a friend who was traveling east towards Corinth. He sent it, and when they received it, They had one of their literate members stand in front of everybody else like Debbie just did and read the whole letter aloud. I mean, it would have taken some time. We only read just maybe 5% of the whole letter, but one of their leaders stood in front of the entire gathering of all of the Christians in Corinth and read the entire letter from Paul And as Paul's letter was read, he was casting a vision for the kind of connection that should exist, the kind of connection that ought to exist between Christians so that each individual could be included and encouraged. And he uses this metaphor. This metaphor you noticed as you heard Debbie read the text, this metaphor about a human body and all of its complexity. I don't have to tell you this. You already know that the human body has 206 different bones, don't you? You already knew that the human body has 639 different muscles in it. You already knew about all of the complexity of the skin and the ligaments and the cartilage and the veins and the arteries and the organs and the blood. You already know about how complex the human body is. It's a system of miraculous components. But each component has a purpose, right? And each component participates and contributes to the better functioning functioning of the entire body. And Paul says that is a good description of how things ought to be in the church. If you were to look back at that verse, chapter 12, verse 13, Paul starts explaining. He says, you know, all of us in the church, we come from different backgrounds, We've been through different things. We've experienced different stuff. We all got here by a different route, he says. He says there were some of us who grew up back east, and there were some of us who grew up out west. There were some of us who were raised in religious families, and there were some of us who weren't. And he says the lives that we're living here today, here in Corinth, 
the day-to-day life that we're living, for each and every one of us, it's different. He says there's some of us that have to get up and go to work at the port, and we work all day sweating, trying to unload stuff, and then there's others of us who just watch the money come in from the ship that we ordered. He says there's people all over the map, people with all kinds of different experiences here in our church. And the way Paul describes the church in Corinth makes it sound a lot like the church here at Heritage to me. Makes it sound a lot like our church family. I mean, doesn't that sound familiar? We all come from different backgrounds too, right? Some of us grew up out east. Some of us grew up out west. Some of us grew up down south. Some of us grew up right here. But we all came from different places. And when we leave this place, every week we go about our separate ways and we have different routines and different responsibilities and we have different interests and we have different obligations and we have things to do that are different than what the other people Everything's homogenous. There's probably some churches, some place in the world where all the members are pretty similar. There's probably some churches in other places where everybody's from the same spot and where everybody's daily routine looks like everybody else, but not at Heritage. Not at Heritage. In our church family, we're one of those churches like Corinth where there's a lot of diversity, a lot of diversity of background and opinion and education and expertise. And the people who attend this church don't all talk the same. We don't all speak the same language. We don't all think the same. We don't all vote the same. We don't all cook the same. We don't all live the same. In fact, the truth is there's there's a lot of reason. If you were to get to know all of the people that are included, they're just here in this audience today, there's a lot of reason to think we don't have very much in common with one another. We've got a lot of difference, a lot of variety between us. And that's what Paul's trying to say about this church in Corinth. If Paul knew about heritage, he might have told the Corinthians, y'all are a lot like that church in Fort Worth. But the point of his letter The point of Paul's entire letter is to say the variety that exists, the diversity that exists in the church family is a feature, not a glitch. What Paul is trying to say in this letter is that our diversity is a miraculous trait, a miraculous characteristic of our church. He says, despite our distinctions and our differences, we have all been baptized into one body by one spirit, and we all share the same spirit, he says. Which is really profound if you stop and listen to that. Because what Paul is talking about is a cosmic transformation, a cosmic event that has happened, a divinely inspired metamorphosis that has happened in the lives of every person who has decided to become a follower of Jesus. Paul says, if you've decided to be a follower of Jesus, God has begun a transformation in your life. And none of us can probably even realize the full extent of the transformation that God has launched because this is different. This is different than any other kind of membership that we have ever experienced anywhere else. Think about all the memberships in your life. There's all sorts of things you can sign up for and get a membership to, right? I mean, you can get a library card. 
You can get a Netflix subscription. You can get a fantasy football league. You can go to Costco and get a membership there. And in each and every one of those memberships, you can just go and get the access to the things you want, and you can leave behind the things that you don't want. You don't have to interact with anybody else. You don't have to connect with anybody else, and you can cancel. You can cancel when you get bored. You can cancel when you get busy. You can cancel when you decide that you found a different and better offer someplace else. But Paul is saying, when you said yes to God, when you accepted God's invitation, when you allowed God to begin a process of transformation in your life, he said, this is different than any other group you're a part of. This is different than any other membership you've ever had. Paul says this yes, this yes to God involves becoming part of something bigger than you. He says when you say yes to God, you're saying I, I accept being a part of a body that's bigger than me. And just like the human body, each part of this body plays a different role. Each different part has a different job, a different function, and the variety is by design. And the trouble is, the trouble is that our human nature, see if you think this is true when I say it, our human nature leads us to believe that difference is a reason for division. Is that true in your experience? Is that how you've seen it happen? Our human nature leads us to believe that our differences are reasons for divisions between us. And Paul knows this is true. In fact, over the next couple of paragraphs of his letter where he talks about if the foot thought, well, I can't be a part of this because I'm not an ear or a hand. And then in the next paragraph where he says, one body part can't say to the other, I don't need you. In these two paragraphs, Paul, Paul addresses this problem where we think our division, our, our, that our differences actually create division between us. And Paul says that's not how it has to be. In fact, in the first of those two paragraphs, he, ad he addresses feelings of inferiority. He says, since our diversity is intentional, he says no one should let their distinctiveness make them feel inferior. Has that ever happened to you? Paul says, your differences should never lead you to believe that you don't belong in the family of God. Your differences should never lead you to believe that you don't belong in the family of God. Of God. This is what he's getting at when he says the foot should never say because I'm not a hand I don't belong to the body. The foot's uniqueness, the foot's difference is the reason that it brings value and contribution to the body, Paul says. But then in the next paragraph, he turns it the other direction and he addresses feelings of superiority. He says, since our diversity is intentional, you shouldn't let your abilities or your opinions or your strengths or your background make you feel superior. Another way to say it would be, my differences should never lead you to believe that I don't belong. All right? 
Read those two sentences together. Your differences should never lead you to believe that you don't belong. And my differences should never lead you to believe that I don't belong. Can you imagine? Can you imagine a community of human beings who were so different from one another that it was just plain as day? A community of people where the differences were so obvious that they couldn't be denied. And instead of thinking, well, we don't have anything in common. Instead of thinking, well, we probably don't have any opportunity to work together. Instead of looking at our differences and thinking that those were reasons for division, can you imagine a human community where the differences are the reason for connection? The differences are the reason for connection. This is what God's doing. But it's so counterintuitive for us. It's so counterintuitive because our, our tendency, our natural default tendency is just to gravitate toward the people that remind us of us, right? I mean, it's so natural for us. I mean, think about it. Think about the kinds of things. When you, when you look around on social media, think of you're on LinkedIn, you're looking for the people who have something in common with you, people who are fans of the same teams as you, people who like the same hobbies as you. You fill out a dating profile online. What are you looking for when you're on that service? You're looking for somebody that's got some common interests with you, some things that you have in common. This is our, our default. Our default is to gravitate toward the people who remind us of us. Our tendency is to look for points of commonality. We're more comfortable around people who see the world the way we do. We're more comfortable around people and we can relate to people because of our similar past and our similar preferences. That's how it works with the human heart, right? But doesn't that tendency always lead to more division? Doesn't that tendency always lead you to say, well, I thought we had something in common until I found out that. I thought we had a lot in common until I found out what you thought about this. I thought we had a lot in common until I found out who you voted for. I thought we had a lot in common until I found out X, Y, Z. Our tendency, our tendency always leads to more division. This is how, it, this is how we do. This is how it works. But I want to tell you, and Paul's trying to tell you that God is doing something in the church that does not happen anywhere else. That God is up to something among the community of people who have said yes to Jesus. God is using the church to build connection and closeness through communion. Not through uniformity. Not through commonality. God is using the church to build connection and closeness through communion. Here's a way to say it. God is building a countercultural congregation of people whose ability to love one another despite their differences points to something miraculous that must be happening between them. This is what God is doing in the family of the church. God is building a community where the differences create opportunity for connection. 
God is building a community of people where our differences and our ability to love one another despite our differences points to something that has to be supernatural, something divine, something miraculous that must be happening here because it doesn't happen anywhere else, right? This is what God is doing in the church. And in this letter, Paul is challenging the members of the church in Corinth and I think challenging the members of the church at Heritage to partner with God in this mission of relationship redemption. He's saying, get with the program, join in on what God is doing. So as Paul addresses these different issues, if you were to read the entirety of 1 Corinthians, you would find out that they were dealing with all kinds of problems in their church, that there were some people who thought they ought to write to get Paul's advice, and some people said, no, don't ask him. We don't trust what he says anymore. Instead, let's write to Apollos and find out what he says. You would find out that there was all these factions, all these cliques, all these different groups inside their church. There were some people who thought it was right to do this, and some people thought it was wrong to do this. There were people who were disagreeing with one another. There were people who were showing up early so that they could have communion and leave before she got here, before he got here. There was all kinds of trouble, all kinds of trouble in the church at Corinth. And Paul is saying, listen, when are y'all going to learn to stick together? When are y'all going to learn to be connected? When are y'all going to decide to join in the redemptive process that God is carrying out among you. And the problem is, it's just so easy to drift apart, isn't it? It's so easy to drift apart. And when we treat our faith like it's an individualistic journey, when we treat our faith experience like it's just me and God and the rest of y'all are on the periphery, when we treat the faith journey like it's just a personal thing, it's like going to a concert and having a, like, mind-blowing emotive experience I mean think about you you've seen how some of you went to Metallica last night some of you went to Taylor Swift earlier this year like you go to this concert and you have this event this experience where it just feels like wow we were all unified we were all you know we had our lights up in the air our cell phones were swaying we were singing along we were doing the thing and then you leave there and you don't see any of those people ever again And you had a a once-in-a-lifetime, one-time personal experience in a big group of people, right? But that's different. That's different than being part of a body. That's different than being connected to the people. It's so easy to drift apart, but we belong to one another, Paul says. We're connected to one another. We need one another. We depend on one another. And when we're separate from each other, when we're, di- when we're separated or when we're divided from one another, Paul says we're incomplete. So the question that Paul wants to ask us this morning, the question I want to ask you as we kick off a new season in our community life, as we kick off a new season of this school year and kind of a time in, in our social world when, when you know, families are back into kind of a different routine, summertime's over. As we enter into this season, the question I want to ask you is, in a world that's trying to pull us apart from one another, what's your plan to stay connected? In a world that's trying to say, You're too busy. 
you're distracted, you've got other things to do, and you don't have anything in common with them anyway. They're different. It's going to take some work to get along anyway. In a world that's trying to pull us apart, what's going to be your plan this semester, this school year, to stay connected to the body of Christ? How are you working with the Spirit who is trying to accomplish this, accomplish this miraculous unifying work in your life? How are you going to partner with the Spirit instead of resisting or even working against God's unifying purpose in your life? How are you going to stay connected? I want to tell you about how another faith community does this. There's a community of Jewish people that live in Manhattan, New York City, on the, the island of Manhattan there. And because of their convictions and their religious belief about the Sabbath, there are some challenges that make it hard for them to observe the Sabbath while living in the city. According to the laws of Sabbath, nothing, nothing can be carried outside of your domestic zone, outside of your home, the boundaries of your home on Saturday, which means you can't carry house keys, you can't carry a wallet, you can't carry your baby, you can't push a stroller. If you can't carry anything outside the boundaries of your home, then you can't leave your home, which is not a rule for Sabbath. And so the Jewish community in New York has devised a plan together, and it's, it's called an Eruv. I, I mentioned this about 18 months ago in a sermon. I gave it about two sentences worth of mention. I'm going to trust that you don't remember what I preached 18 months ago either, because I don't, you know, and that's okay. But they have this, it looks like a piece of fishing string, it really is a piece of fishing string. And it goes from the southern tip of Manhattan around the west side of the island, and it's, and it's suspended on telephone wires and across from one block to the next. And it goes all the way up north, past Central Park, all the way up to 145th Street. And then it cuts across to the east side, and it goes all the way back down 18 miles of fishing wire. And the Jewish community in New York has decided together that everything inside that boundary, everything inside that marker, all, all of those square miles that are inside that marker, that counts as part of our domestic zone. That counts as part of the area where they can move around and still be observing the Sabbath. And so inside the Aruv, you're allowed to move freely and carry your wallet and your keys and your baby and push the stroller. And every Friday afternoon, a team of rabbis drives the, the distance around the perimeter of the Aruv and checks to make sure that the wire is intact. Now, I don't know. There's some argument among the rabbis, there's some argument in the Jewish community about whether or not that's really within the spirit of the law. 
about whether that really counts, about whether that's how the Sabbath is really supposed to work. There's some people who say, nah, I don't think that counts, and there's some people who argue that it does, and I'm not interested in getting involved in their argument. But what I do think is fascinating is that they have a plan. They have a plan that on the Sabbath day, they have arranged their life so that they can stay connected to what God is doing. They have a plan that says, we are not going to go outside these boundaries. We're going to set up this perimeter so that we can be obedient, so that we can be connected, so that we can still be part of this community. They've got a plan. They've got something that's anchoring them to their faith wherever they go. When I was growing up, we sang a song in church. And it's, it was called, We Have an Anchor. Maybe one or two of you would remember this one. But the, the first verse said, Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife when the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? And then the chorus said, we have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, while the waves come in. Fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and grounded deep in the Savior's love. And every time I sang that song growing up, I thought, I thought that Jesus was the anchor. Like I, I sang that song and I thought, well, I understand these verses. I mean, Jesus is the anchor, right? And then I read it closer. I read it closer this week and I, I sang this song over and over and the words just rattled around in my head and I thought, wait, hold on just a second. We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. And I came to realize that in this song, Jesus is not the anchor. Jesus is the bedrock. Jesus is what we're anchoring to. Jesus is what we're trying to stay connected with. Jesus is the point there. He's where we want to stay. And if this song is true, if this song is real for us, and we say we have an anchor, I started asking, what is the anchor? What is the anchor that keeps us connected to Jesus? What is the anchor that keeps us grounded, firm, and deep in the Savior's love? And I think it's us. I think it's us. I think you're my anchor, and I think I'm your anchor. I think that together, you and I are keeping one another grounded in the Savior's love. I think it's us. And God gave us this on purpose. God gave us this by design. There's nobody here. There's nobody that's in this family that's a part of this by accident. So whatever body part sounds like you, Whatever body part in that metaphor sounds like you, it's, there's somebody else in the room that's way different, right? I mean, you might be the ear because you're such a good listener. You might be the hand because you're such a servant. And then there's somebody else in here that's like a gallbladder, right? Somebody else in here that's a hangnail. 
and and it's by design. And God did all of this and said all the parts of the body need one another. All the parts of the body are vital. All the parts of the body are important and they all belong and I created all of them. And when you're a part of this, when you celebrate with each other in life's moments of elation, when you grieve with one another in life's moments of difficulty, when you're part of this community, when you stay connected, Paul says, Paul says, all of you together are Christ's body. And you're a part of it. You're what's helping keep me grounded, and I'm what's helping keep you grounded, and we're what's helping keep one another anchored firm and deep in the Savior's love. And so my question for you this morning is, how are you going to stay connected to your church family in this new season? Over the next couple of weeks, you're going to be hearing more information about new opportunities for participation in small groups and Bible studies and Bible classes. You're going to be hearing more information about ways that you can say, I'm going to commit to be a part of community. I'm going to commit to connect with people on a regular basis and all of that, there's, there's all sorts of offerings, all sorts of opportunities, but the question that we can't answer for you is, how are you going to stay connected? How are you going to decide to be a part of what God is doing in your life? Because God is building a congregation of connection that happens through communion. God's building a congregation of people who are connected to one another, not because of all of their similarities, not because of all of their common past, not because of all of their common interests, not because of their common background, but because of their common communion with Jesus Christ. Common communion with Jesus Christ.